Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before I get started, I know you've already downloaded the episode because you're listening to it. But before you just get back to what you're doing, take a look at the episode description for each show. It'll give you more background on our guest, on their work, whether or not that's a book or a website or a substack, or any of the information that we reference during the show. It'll give you that extra context you need to not only listen and understand, but also go spread the pro-democracy gospel. Thanks, everybody, and on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm once again joined by Stuart Stevens, senior advisor to The Lincoln Project, author of It Was All a Lie, and author of The Conspiracy to End America, his latest title, coming this fall, and available for pre-order wherever fine books are sold. Stuart, welcome back. Thank you, brother. Great to be here. Thanks for asking me to the party. So, Stuart, we are staring down the barrel of the Republican Party's first presidential debate next Wednesday, as we're recording this, uh, August 23rd in Milwaukee, hosted by the likes of Young Americans for Freedom, which is now led, I think, by Old Americans for Fascism. And Fox News will be the media host. So far, eight candidates have qualified to be on the stage. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum, uh, who is the governor of North Dakota, who literally had to buy people gift cards to get them to give him a dollar, and former Vice President Mike Pence. Just before we get going, Stu, just as a matter of background for our audience, it's worth noting that those who attend the Milwaukee debate must sign a series of pledges, including a promise to support the eventual Republican nominee. Some candidates like Chris Christie have been critical of the pledge, and Trump has outright refused to sign it. The debate is set to be co-moderated by Brett Baer and Martha McCallum of Fox News, who I think McCallum, Stewart, to my mind, is rapidly becoming like the Lee Greenwood of Fox News. Like they only roll her out every, you know, six or nine months for something special. So tell us, I mean, that's a rogues gallery to say the least. What's your sense of it? So I always ask myself, you know, what would I be doing if I was doing debate prep? I think the key is to go into a debate with two to four very specific goals that you want to accomplish. And for the life of me, I can't answer what it would be for most of those candidates. I suppose uh, Chris Christie is the easiest. He's going to be, he's going to go out and he's going to attack Donald Trump. He's going to challenge the party. He's going to be Chris Christie sort of unleashed. I imagine Ron DeSantis is going to have in front of him a legal pad that will say, be likable, which is sort of like, you know, be funny, damn it. I just don't know what the others are going to try to accomplish, which goes to what is your message? What is their rationale for being president other than, you know, it would be nice to be president. It's a very, very strange dynamic when you have a criminal who is the presumptive nominee, former president, who you have to pledge that you will support this person who tried to overthrow the government of the United States to be on the debate stage. So that in itself would seem to be disqualifying to be president, that you're willing to support someone is. So these things are always a freak show, but this seems to be a freaky freak show. Right. It's nothing but the yak woman, the bearded lady, and, and all those guys that run the tilt-a-whirl. But again, I mean, what's the point, Stuart, of doing this? I mean, what's the point for the party? What's the point for Fox? What's the point for the host organization? They're going to have eight people up there, none of whom are, like you said, are likely to be the nominee, and most of whom, you know, let's say at least half, most people have never heard of or have very little idea of. So they'll be in the here's who I am business. And the rest of them who towed the line on Trump since the get-go, and then as you noted, you've got Chris Christie who will go after Trump, and Mike Pence, who I think Rick was telling us on a call that we did earlier today, is somewhere like 36% underwater with Republican primary voters. So 
it just seems to me to be a big waste of time and money and energy for people. In 2012, we had 19 primary debates, including two on the same day. I mean, utter madness, where literally one was like on a meet the press in the morning where we were having the break prep at 5.30, and then there was one in the evening. I tried to organize the other candidates, besides Romney, into some sort of call a candidate union so that we could bring an end to this madness. Because, you know, when you do a debate, if you do it right, it paralyzes a campaign. You can't just fly in and fly out on Nuke, seem to do that. And Trump, too. But most saying can't. They want to prepare. They want to go rested. And let me just say, it takes every other piece of the campaign offline from doing what it needs to do to get this stuff done. That's absolutely right. You're not going to have your guy making fundraising calls the day before he goes into a debate where some you know, funder turns him down and depresses him and yells at him. And- right. But you damn well have better have done well, because if you do badly the next day or even that night, the biggest donors are going to say, what the hell happened? So I tried to organize so that, you know, to have a debate, the one thing you need are candidates. So they are their own stars. They can, in theory, take charge of this process. All they have to do is say, look, we're not going to do this. We'll do these debates. We'll do that. I can say that I had a 100% failure rate. Because when I would go to any of these candidates, they would say, look, dude, uh, you're working for Romney. Romney's doing okay. You don't need the free publicity. I need the free publicity. I'm going to show up at the debate. And there you are. You know, I think the whole way that we have done primary debates being sponsored by news organizations is very odd. Think about it. What are news organizations doing sponsoring debates. They don't sponsor like 4th of July parades. There's kind of a NASCAR quality to it, particularly when it got so overblown in the past where you'd have these rollouts of the candidates like it was Wide World Wrestling or something. It was was so demeaning. It really was about the networks, about the cable networks that were doing this. And the hours of lead up, right? And promoting their on-air talent. It's sort of like, well, look, It's a slow day. We're going to start a fire so we can cover the fire. It's going to be the CNN fire. It's very odd. I've thought that the way that you do this is like everything else we do in campaigns. Somebody should hold a debate. The University of Iowa, Iowa State, whatever, Rotary Club. And then they should cover the debate. And when I would say this to them, they'd say, no, no, you don't understand how expensive it is to put on these debates. Well, look, you don't have to have high production values for the debates. Arguably, the best debate we had in 2012 was when we had at Dartmouth in the student union that Charlie Rose, remember him, hosted. And he, you know, Charlie's thing was to have a table. So that was it. It was a bunch of people sitting around a table. I don't know how much it cost to, like, you know, move Charlie's table up to New Hampshire for this, but it wasn't a lot. And that's all you need to do. Nobody is watching this for the production values. So, you know, you should take like the Brian Lamb approach and just be out there. Let's spend a little time because it's it's always a good refresher for all of us about these things, because you talk about the media sponsorship. And then you, you remember you go into the debate hall, Stuart, and talk about overproduced. Now, I got to go to the Taylor Swift concert with my daughters last week. That was not overproduced. It was perfectly produced, but it fit the stage and the performer. These are way overproduced with all sorts of literal bells and whistles and lights and backdrops and you know, crazy podiums that they've spent thousands of dollars on and everything else. And you have to have the walkthrough. And, you know, is it going to be 75 degrees in the debate hall or 70 degrees in the debate hall? And all of this stuff, all of the other bullshit that comes along to get your guy or gal, as you said, two to four points, you know, in the course of a debate. All right. So let's do the math here. How long is this debate going to be? An hour? Or is it an hour and a half? Let's call it 90 minutes. I would guess. 90 minutes. So do the math. You're going to have, say, seven, eight people. I don't know if they have opening statements. I don't know what the ground rules are. But usually they'll have a minute opening statement. They'll have a closing statement. So when you really do the math, the most each of these candidates is going to talk is five to eight minutes. That's it. And so the candidates are up there. They don't know what to do. And some candidates always get more questions. Because let's face it, you know, some of these people, are people really interested in what Nikki Haley feels about, you know, the war in Ukraine or something. I mean, you know, these are, no one cares. So there's not going to be a balanced question. DeSantis will get more because DeSantis is the 
preemptive, uh, you know, presumptive second place runner. Uh, Christie will get more because they want the fireworks of Christie. Pence will get more because Trump tried to kill him. You know, Tim Scott will get more because he's the sort of last hope of the quote unquote establishment. So now you say, OK, you got four of them and the other, you know, four or five are sort of like, you know. Yeah. And they're all going to go in with lines they want to deliver, which I think is the worst way to prepare anybody for debate. You know, actors can't deliver lines in the first take. So all the years I did debate prep, candidates always want to say, what is my line? What are my lines? Because the only thing you remember from debates they say is, well, you know, there you go again, or, you know, you're no John Kennedy. I think it's a terrible way to prepare. I think the debates are about arguments and you have to hone your argument. And I think that if you are thinking about when can I deliver this line? It takes you out of the moment, takes you out of the argument, and it usually falls flat. Or you have a line that you've practiced the week before. And I go back to that 2012 cycle, Stuart, because you were in the room and probably saw this. I saw it on TV when then governor of Minnesota, Tim Pawlenty, had been calling during the Obamacare stuff, Obamnicare, because Mitt Romney had said in Massachusetts, we should think about it. So Obamnicare, Obamnicare, Obamnicare. I believe it was John King that served up a batting practice pitch for Pawlenty to just whack Romney. And he didn't take it. And I recall Romney standing there grinning like a Cheshire cat must think to himself in, a, in his very polite way, you didn't have the Constitution to do that, did you? Right. And that was the end of Pawlenty's campaign. That was it. It was over after that. And he later endorsed Romney. You know, Tim is another person that we don't hear about now because he doesn't have a place in the party. On the decency scale, he's off the charts, which is pretty much disqualifying to be in the Republican Party these days. But to your point on that, let's just stick with the logistics of the debate for a second, Stuart, because you talk about the prep piece of this. There was a time, even as recently as 2012, when if, again, especially up against an incumbent Democratic president, there were significant policy issues to be debated. It could have been Obamacare. It could have been the war in Iraq or Afghanistan, all those things that were still very much top of mind for the American people, taxes, whatever the case might be. And so there was some expectation that these candidates had some idea what they were talking about when it came to the issues of the day. What are they going to talk about now? You know, this goes to the heart of the problem that the Republican Party has no policy. I mean, I just don't know how many times you can say Hunter Biden's laptop. It's just sort of the brokenness of the party. When we came up in the party, you know, there was a certain sort of core set of values or issues. You know, there was the Cold War. There was crime. There was welfare. There were taxes. And you can make a good case, and smarter people than me or political scientists have done this, that the problem with the Republican Party in part was they sort of won on these issues. Bill Clinton adopted in welfare as we know it until he was tough on crime. A different kind of Democrat. Well, that turned out to be like a, a Democrat that favors the death penalty. Um, taxes came down and the, the party never rebooted. And in 99, when you were working for Bush, I was working for Bush going into the 2000 election. This was the genesis of what was going to be called compassionate conservatism. And it was an attempt to come up with a new policy framework. And, you know, if you remember, our guy Bush got a lot of grief from conservatives because they said, when you say compassionate conservatives, are you really trying to say that conservatives haven't been compassionate? And Bush's answer pretty much was, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, you know, it, the tragedy of Bush, of course, is he became a wartime president. Tragic on so many levels, probably the greatest foreign policy blunder in American history. But it never gave him a chance to become what that might have looked like. So what is a sort of inkling of what it was? No, no child left behind. Right. That His first major policy thing was a domestic public education thing that he got done with Teddy Kennedy. Yeah, there's that famous picture of, I guess, infamous, we better now where he's signing and Ted Kennedy's over his right shoulder, which now would be presented like at The Hague as a war crimes tribunal for the Republican Party. Like, we, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I have evidence here that will convict George Bush for associating with known Democrats. And then, you know, 9-11 happened, and it really sort of never was able to develop. There was an effort to reform Social Security that never really went anywhere. There was Medicare Part D. And, you know, there's sort of a parlor game among some of us it's somewhat sort of sad, has kind of a Sunset Boulevard quality of what would it have been like, what Bush been like without the war? You know, what could the party have become? 
And, you know, when Romney ran, he ran pretty much on an economic ticket. And he was not a great culture warrior. He wasn't mad at anybody. And, you know, he lost. And then the party went through that so-called autopsy where they ask a lot of good questions. Like, why is it that we've lost a popular vote every time since 88, except in 2004, and we barely won then? You know, why is it we lose with non-white women and women who predominantly work outside the home, single women being the worst? Why is it that we don't appeal to African-Americans? Why is it that still the party is predominantly a, a white party? And the answers were pretty obvious. You had to be more inclusive. You had to seem like you wanted to listen. You had to develop policies that appealed to these people. And if you remember, when the autopsy came out, it was presented not just as a political fix. It was a moral mandate. Because if you were going to earn the right to govern this big, confidence, confusing, loud, contradictory country, you know, you could be more like the country. And then all of that went away when Trump came away. Almost with like an audible sigh of relief, it was like, oh, thank God we don't have to pretend we care about this shit. We can just win with white people. And that's the tragedy of the party. You know, I didn't think in 16 that there were enough white voters out there that Trump could motivate to vote to be able to win this election, not appealing to non-whites. Among the many things I was wrong about 16, you know, I went out there and I compared them to the lost tribes of the Amazon. This idea that if you only went out there and beat the drums loud enough, they would come and how ridiculous that was. Well, it turns out that was right. <laughs> and they did beat the drums and the drums were, you know, Mexicans are rapists and Muslim ban and all of that. And I would have thought that whatever you gained at that lower frequency white voter motivated by this, you would lose with college educated voters what we now call the Bannon line. And that didn't happen in 16. It was happening until the Comey letter. And then, in, you know, in no small part to the efforts of the Lincoln Project, in 20, it did happen. And the, the question I really think is, who were these candidates in this debate? I always say that, you know, who are you talking to? Who is your market here? And you really have to ask yourself those tough questions. Otherwise, you're just like shooting a shotgun off in the air and hoping ducks fly by. So think about it. You know, you're Tim Scott. Maybe you're just talking to donors to try to prove to donors that you can be this alternative. DeSantis, what is he going to try to accomplish in this debate? Prove that he's human? You know, but probably what's going to happen is it's just they're not going to go into this with a clear cut set of goals. It's going to be kind of a train wreck and not much will change. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo. Modern management made simple. Look, we could probably lay out a few of the questions that I hope Fox would ask, but maybe they won't. Did Donald Trump win the 2020 election? I don't know if they'll ask that. Well, let's pause there. So DeSantis has now said that he did. I guess Nikki Haley has said he lost, but, you know, shouldn't have or there were problems. I guess Mike Pence will say he lost, right? Yeah. And what you've heard is like, you'll hear them say something like, well, Joe Biden's president. They won't say Trump lost. They'll say, well, Joe Biden's president. I accept Joe Biden as president. Yeah. But how do they do that? So let's say, OK, let's rattle them off. DeSantis has said Trump lost 2020. Christie said he lost 2020. Pence has said, based on he knows that, you know, Trump lost in Georgia. That's probably as close as he's going to get. And th then the rest of them, you know, are going to have to figure out where they where they want to go. But the truth is, is that none of them are going to do what we think they should do, probably, Stuart, which is take him to task for the fact that, yes, he did, in fact, lose the 2020 election. Yes, he did, in fact, attempt a coup. And yes, he did, in fact, incite a seditious riot at the U.S. Capitol. We can't even get Pence to say that, right? And he was the one who was about to hang from the gallows. Yeah. I mean, think about it. People are trying to hang you and, you know, you just sort of chalk it up to a misunderstanding. You know... It really goes to the brokenness of the party. They have to be able to just speak some level of truth here that people know. 
And most people in America know that there wasn't an FBI, some sort of like underground movement. There wasn't a false flag operation. No one really believes this stuff. No one really cares about Hunter Biden's laptop. And what are they going to say? Will Hurt won't say he should have voted to impeach. I don't know how you get out of this, except where we've decided, you know, the Lincoln Project is, the only way that the party is ever going to try to save itself is if it's crushed. Well, and that's the thing is that some of these candidates who, you know, I'm not going to comment on their credit. Well, most of them have no credibility or any credibility. And, and I don't know how many of them would be good at being president, even if they were to be the nominee. But, you know, there's an expression, Stuart, you cut your losses, right? Why do you say that? Because I've lost so much, I don't want to lose anymore. So I have to accept how bad I need it to be to be able to get a fresh start. And that's the thing is, if these people, if the Tim Scotts and the Nikki Haley's for whom, like we know people that work for these people, they used to be normal. They probably still consider themselves normal. If they truly wanted the party back, they would do everything they could to make sure Donald Trump lost next year, because that's that's what they would want, because at least then you can say, OK, he's lost twice. He lost twice by a landslide. And you know what? Have we broken the spell totally? No, it's going to take a couple of cycles for people to wake up. But here's the thing is that like there's a lot of those zombies, Stuart, that you described that came out of the woods. They only came out of the woods for him. They will probably go back to the woods if and when he moves off the stage. Yeah. And, you know, the single most rapidly declining large demographic are non-college educated whites, which is the Trump base. It's the base of the Republican Party. 1980, that was 60 percent of the electorate when Reagan won a, a sweeping landslide. Now it's 40%, 38%. Since we've been talking, it's gone down. I mean, one of the stats that I just always go back to, it's okay, Ronald Reagan, 1980, wins the sweeping, sweeping landslide with 55% of the white vote. John McCain loses a not very close race with 58% of the white vote. What else do you need to know about how the country's changing? And, you know, people, one of the tragedies I think that's going to happen, and we should really, you know, highlight it in the Lincoln Project, their main criticism against Trump is going to be that he's losing, that he hasn't won an election since 16. As if, you know, he dragged the party down in 20, dragged the party down in 22. It's like, you know, if he was winning, we'd be okay with it. Right. Which was always, to me, going back to the, to the end of last year, Stuart which was always the thing that it didn't, to your point, didn't get nearly enough attention, which was, we're okay with all of the things he said and did and the crazy ass things that he did as president and is willing to do if he gets back in. We just don't like it because he's cost us power. That was really the bottom line. They were mad at him for policy or behavior or the tweets or anything else. It was because he had cost them power. That's what upset them. You know, this is probably something that coming from someone who worked for Romney sounds like, you know, sour grapes or something. But Donald Trump in 16 got 46.2% of the vote. In 20, he moved it up to 46.9%. Okay, Romney lost with 47.2%. So Romney got a larger percentage of the electorate than Trump did in either race. Had minority, non-white turnout been at the level that it was in 12, when for the first time, non-white turnout was higher than white turnout in percentage, Hillary Clinton would have won in a walk, which is not to blame non-white voters for Clinton. I mean, the problem <laughs> was with the white voters that didn't vote for Clinton. I mean, but still, when you look at 20, the only demographic that Biden won age-wise was under 30. So let's talk about that, because last month, Democratic pollster Celinda Lake and Mac Heller, a documentary film producer, had an op-ed in the Washington Post. And the headline is, 2024 won't be a Trump-Biden replay. You can thank Gen Z for that. And this is, I think, the key piece to what you're talking about here, Stuart, which it says, which means that between Trump's election in 2016 and the 2024 election, the number of Gen Z born in the late 1990s and early 2010s will have advanced by a net 52 million against older people. That's about 20% of the total 2020 eligible electorate of 258 million Americans, which means it's going to be higher than that next year. That is an amazing stat. And, you know, it goes to, you know, if I ran the Democratic Party, God help us, I would wake up every day trying to get in the culture war because you're winning the culture wars. <laughs> Let's go back to this. 
had this work out when, you know, Trump took on Nike for Kaepernick. Nike made $9 billion. You know, you have DeSantis now waved the white flag with Disney. They actually got in a fight with NASCAR because NASCAR was banning Confederate flags. I mean, if you're in the Republican Party and you're in the wrong side of a cultural war with NASCAR, I mean, really, dude? Well, they're upset that we're renaming military bases. We're taking the names of Confederate generals off of military bases and replacing them with actual American heroes, not traitors. And they're upset about this. You know, this is a great miscalculation, I think, that Trump and then by proxy the Republican Party have made. When they tried to go scare people in the suburbs, white people in the suburbs, you know, because like, you know, non-whites might move in. I mean, I think overwhelmingly the majority of white suburbanites, if a non-white family moved in next door, they would do everything they can to show their kids that we're supposed to welcome these people. They're not going to go out and be burning crosses in the middle of the night in their neighbor's yard. I mean, there are very few parts of our society that honor and think that racism and xenophobia is acceptable. It's not. I mean, little these dark corners of the internet. But most people, this has always been one of the strange things to me about Trumpism. There's not any role models in public life, you know, teachers, Boy Scout, Cub Scout leaders, coaches, ministers, very few of them, that say that you should act the way Trump does, that you should be selfish, that you should treat people badly that you should victimize those who are disabled and mocked him. And yet, somehow that's become like the role model for the Republican Party. Yeah, but I would say this is that in our own research from the Lincoln Democracy Institute shows this, as does the work that Dr. Bob Pape from the University of Chicago has seen, is that those people might be nice to the neighbors that move into the neighborhood, but they go back in the house and they turn on Fox or they turn on OAN. Right. There's a lot of people my age, my cohort, mid to late generation X, white guys, suburbanites, educated, successful. These are the people that stormed the Capitol. It wasn't the guy who crawled out of the holler in eastern Kentucky. And so you're right. They, they don't want to think of themselves and they certainly don't want to be called that. That's a really good point, Reed. But we can't underestimate what Pape's research showed was that the quickest path to radicalization for that Gen X white guy was having lived in a congressional district that started majority white and was now a majority minority district, right? That was the place where you were going to find that stuff. And so it's not polite to say it because you don't want to say, oh, well, you know, the average middle-aged white guy, how bad could he be? Well, he's bad enough to pull the lever for this guy a third time. We should at least accept the fact that that's a possibility, if that makes sense. You know, this is one of the things that drives me crazy about our brethren in the journalist world. And you, you and I both write a lot. We publish more than most journalists. And we're not press haters. But I just don't understand this mandate and necessity to avoid calling Trump supporters racist. An entire subculture of writing of Trump voters in a diner. Like, what is it? I mean, they're racist. Say it. Now, it's like, you know, having the best journalists in America assigned to try to figure out why guys go to strip clubs. I don't know. Maybe it's like naked women. Call me crazy. It's the free buffet at lunch, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you're going, I like the drinks, you know, I get to talk to people. Um, part of this goes back to the inadequacy of our journalist mode and constructs to deal with Trumpism, that when the greatest good is objectivity, how do you tell both sides of a lie? I mean, this is why we started Resolute Square in part, where, you know, we don't try to be objective. We take the attitude, we're right, they're wrong. And, you know, the Lincoln Project did that from the very beginning when you guys started it. You asserted. And when all that talk was that, you know, Democrats were saying, which wasn't crazy, this race shouldn't be about Trump because nobody's going to change their opinion about Trump. And, you know, I wasn't part of the Lincoln Project when it started, but you were. And you guys came out and you said, no, this is about Trump. And basically, you know, that's what Joe Biden was saying when he said it was about the soul of America. And damn it, if Biden didn't end up winning the primary, unlikely as it was, and then he won the general. So let's talk about that. You just brought up the likely nominees of both parties. Um, I had Judd Legum on the show last week. Love that guy. Great guy. Great writer. Does incredible work for, I think it's him and one other person at Popular Information. They do just yeoman work. And he said something that is true, but I hadn't heard it crystallized this way. If you are a major party nominee in the United States, Stuart, you've got a 50-50 chance of being president. 
That's the deal. And so now, as you said, I think when we were talking this morning, that 2024 has the unique thing of basically being a battle of incumbent presidents. So talk about that, because I'm not sure we've seen that before. It's going to be a very interesting, you know, Trump is going to try to run as an outsider. I mean, that was the problem that Trump had in 20. He had to run as an incumbent and defend his record, and he didn't have the idea, you know, what his record was. So traditionally, if you have an incumbent and you have a challenger, the incumbent needs to get 80 to 90 percent of voters who think the country's going in the right direction. That makes sense. This person's president, country's going in the right direction. I'm going to vote for this person. And if you're a challenger, you need to get 85 to 90 percent of people to think the country's going in the wrong direction. In 2000, you could track this. The right track, wrong track of the country absolutely drove that race. And it's one of the reasons that that race ended up being closer than we thought it was, because on election day, consumer confidence was at the highest of any election day since they started uh, tracking consumer confidence. But here you're going to have two candidates, you know, both have been president and people know a lot about them. And, you know, it's going to be a very difficult race, I think, to poll and to model because you're going to have a lot of first time voters. So. In all likelihood, the race is going to be very, very close. And with the Electoral College, you know, everybody should remember this. You should like write it on your hand or, you know, put it on your refrigerator. Biden has to win by four or more points. So if somebody's saying, hey, my guy, Biden is up by three, you go, we're losing, dude. Well, and I think this is why you see, too, that I call it the discount rate for candidates, Stuart. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. Which is for a guy like Trump, he's been a jerk in public for half a century. For 50 years, he's been who he is. So no one is surprised by the fact that this is who he is, right? Like, you're surprised now that Donald Trump doesn't know what Second Corinthians is, right? You're, you're surprised that, like, he paid a porn star for sex. Like, this is why you see, like, Republicans, why Trump needs the Hunter Biden stuff, because they must create that false equivalency that Biden is just as bad as Trump is is just as bad as Trump is. And I'll tell you just anecdotally amongst, you know, the guys that I know who claim they're nominal Republicans, right? They say they don't want Trump again, but they don't bring up Jared Kushner and $2 billion from Saudi Arabia, Stuart, but they do bring up Hunter Biden. And like, that's the thing is, do I think these guys will vote for Trump? Well, one of them lives in Idaho and the other one lives in California. So, you know, vote away, I guess. But again, even if it's just two guys I know, again, those same guys who voted for Trump in 16, maybe they laid off him in 20. But if faced with a guy that they could say, well, Biden's no better than he is, what's the difference, right? It's that what's the difference mindset that tanks the whole ballgame. I think what the Biden campaign has to do, and I have a pretty high degree of confidence because they will do, they have to remind voters what they will lose if Joe Biden isn't president. The economy, we basically have full unemployment now. Inflation's gone down gas prices. And you don't wake up every day wondering what mood the president is in. I was just thinking about this while we were talking. If I was working for like a Tim Scott, you know, I think I would go into it with the idea, I'm going to take out Ron DeSantis. I would say, you know, I want to be number two. When this race is over, when this debate is over, one of us is going to walk off this stage a lot. And I think you could do it because DeSantis is not used to being attacked. And you know, if I was Nikki Haley, I wouldn't go after Trump. I would go after Ron DeSantis. And this is what Mitt Romney did to Rick Perry in the first debate that Perry was in, which was at the Ronald Reagan Center. And Perry, I mean, the guy had never been attacked by Republicans. If you go back and look at that, Mitt was very polite, he was, but he was, he was very prosecutorial. He had his facts straight. He attacked him on the Texas record. Which to him was like, what? I mean, everybody knows Texas is like the greatest place in the world. What are you talking about? He had no idea how to respond. And I would do that for DeSantis. And I think you could have a successful debate. Let Christie take on Trump and you take on DeSantis. And that would give you a structure for the debate and a goal. And, you know, I think if you did it right, you could accomplish it. Well, think about it, too. And there's that clip from last year of Ron DeSantis debating Charlie Crist not a spring chicken, not a particularly talented politician. It may be fine, but, and he asked DeSantis a question about whether or not he would serve a full term or would he run for president? 
And he did, you know, that he looked like a fembot, you know, in Austin Powers, right? His head sort of went back and forth and his eyes came out of his head. And so that was a softball, one, that somebody should have prepared him for. But two, to your point, Stuart, if you had one person going after him, that would probably be enough. But if you had two people going after him, three people. He would get mad. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is he can't control himself. He isn't able to emotionally regulate himself. And then what will happen is he'll get mad. Then in the break, they'll go back to the room and his wife will be rip shit, which will make it worse. And so now you've got to have a guy. It's just like when Christy took Marco Rubio's head off. Rubio, it was over-programmed to begin with, not very good to begin with. And then Christy just took a baseball bat to the side of his head and it was over. Yeah. And he loved doing it too. You could see it. You know, Christy's guy was a U.S. attorney. You know, he's a prosecutor. He prosecuted Rubio. And that's what you need to do to DeSantis. And I would say things like, Ron DeSantis is a failed governor. And then I would just, he would just, his jaw would drop. He would sputter. He wouldn't know how to begin to respond. They won't have prepared him for that. And that would be great fun to watch. And, you know, Ron DeSantis has donors that are on the edge. They don't really think this guy has what it takes. And you could inherit some of those donors if you were the person who went out and took him out. So it'll be interesting to see if somebody actually does that. Well, and it's actually a brilliant strategy, Stu, because also, you know, there's been some complaints from people in Iowa and New Hampshire that all the guy does is talk about Florida, right? And you could say, you know, Governor DeSantis, as we've seen, he can't talk about anything but Florida. So let's talk about Florida for a minute. That would be a great opening. Right. And then you go into like, he picks a fight with your state's biggest employer, you know, for no reason, and then waves the white flag. Loses a billion dollars investment that Disney was going to make. You know, we're, we're now in hurricane season in Florida. The home insurance market in Florida has basically collapsed. You're going to have millions of coastal Floridians who are going to have to self-insure, right? Where's Ron DeSantis in Iowa talking about what a great job he's done instead of being at home where he should be trying to figure out how to protect the nation's fourth biggest state? More people died of COVID in Florida than any large state. So you didn't do a great job, actually, in Florida with COVID. You failed. And he just would not know how to respond to that. You know, I've always thought that the greatest sin in politics, I think, is to go for a murder conviction when you could have won with manslaughter. Don't make voters believe something that is so difficult to believe that they'll just reject it. You know, you don't have to go out and say, this person is the worst senator. Just say, he's not that great of a senator. We can do better. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. You know what? We could say all we want about Trump and authoritarianism and the court cases and everything else. The truth was, Stu, he wasn't a good president. He didn't like the job, didn't want to do the job, was bad at the job, had people around him who were only there because he was there and wanted it largely for their own benefit. This was not a guy who cared about doing the job in the first place. You think he's going to care about doing the job more now? I mean, I just remember thinking about, you know, and just as a quick aside here, Stuart, you know, before the inauguration, the president-elect is over at Blair House, right, which is the sort of diplomatic guest home across the street from the White House and the EOB. I had been lucky enough to be there with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney as president and vice president-elect prior to the 2001 inaugural. And I was thinking to myself, okay, he's there. They're literally handing him the crown jewels. There are guys with briefcases chained to their wrists saying, okay, Mr. President-elect, in 90 minutes, you're going to be leader of the free world. Here are the things you need to know about that. Right. And I was thinking to myself, maybe the gravity of the situation would take over. And then I had this moment as you see the cars pull up to the White House. And then as you see the motorcade making its way up Pennsylvania Avenue towards the Capitol, thinking, okay, it's been bad. This guy's a terrible choice, but he's going to figure it out. And then he took the lectern and he started talking. And I said, shit. He's the only guy. Whoever gave an inaugural address in a bad mood, like he was mad about having to be up here, you know? I mean, this is what our former boss, George Bush, supposedly said to President Obama. That was some weird shit. 
which you know you can just hear Bush saying that, and that portrait of America, the carnage that this is a dark place, and you know when you look at it, this is the logic of why he's going up now, because they look at it and not that Trump failed, but that if Donald Trump couldn't change this, no one could, and so now the deep state is seeking their revenge on Donald Trump. There's a weird, strange logic to it. Because part of Trumpism is never being able to admit that you were wrong, which, you know, most of us were taught that was a character quality that you should do. You should be willing to admit you're wrong because most of us are wrong most of the time. And it's a whole way of looking at the world. You know, say what you will about Ronald Reagan. His vision of what it meant to be American was that you had won my lottery. And inequalities in America, but no one was disadvantaged in life because they were born in America. Donald Trump has completely reversed it. Now, to be an American is to be a chump, a patsy, a victim. There are these powerful forces out there in the world that are taking advantage of us, you know, like Canada. And he's going to even the score. And it's such a horrible way to go through life. It's so soul-crushing. But that's exactly what so mystifies me about the guys that I know, the guys are my age, which is, you know, I remember once talking to, uh, I told somebody this, is like, you are the freest person humanity has ever known. No one on earth can tell you what to do right this moment. No one. You could pick up and you can go wherever you want. If you want a job, you can find a job. If you want to start a business, you can start a business. You are as lucky a human as has ever appeared in six billion years on this planet. And somehow you're pissed off. And I don't get it, Stuart. I don't get it. I think this contract between being a citizen and what our politics was, there was an assumption that it made demands on you as a citizen, that you were supposed to aspire to something better than you were that this was the sort of American experiment compact, that we were deeply flawed, that there was a country founded in tragedies, but that we would aspire to be something that was bigger and better than ourselves. No one articulated this better than your guy, John McCain, to be part of something. And Trump has made it that he has given you permission to be your worst self. That's attractive. You know, somebody passes you and like you get a little spurt of road rage. Trump says, you know, if you let that person pass you, you're a sucker. Well, that's pretty easy. Not to get angry is what's difficult. To get angry, you know, call people names, blame them for anything, that's easy to do. Because it also absolves you of responsibility. But, you know, here's a paradox that I get. It's an extension of what you're saying, Rick. The only economic group that Donald Trump won in 2020 were those who made over $100,000 a year. What? What score is Donald Trump settling for you? It's like you're saying about your friends, you won, and yet you support Trump? Why? Now, part of that is demographic, you know? I think a lot of it is demographic. I mean, your whole book, It Was All Lie, is significantly about this. I think a lot of it is demographic, that this idea of that the world is changed. Listen, I'll say this, and I, I have not yet figured out how to properly or efficiently or effectively articulate it. The world has changed, okay? The world is always changing, but the world has changed significantly, Stuart whether or not that's pre-9-11, whether or not that's pre-Katrina, whether or not that's pre-Trump or pre-COVID, right? We have had 20 years of black swans, a pond full of black swans, all deciding that they want to squawk as loud as they want. The world is different. It is never going back for anybody to what it was. And that's a good thing if we take the opportunity. But it's a bad thing if we say, I'm going to pine for a past that frankly never existed, but the nostalgia gives me this comfort that, you know what, to your point, I can be whoever I want, whatever I want, do whatever I want. For Christ's sake, Stuart, nobody can tell me what to do. What I find so disturbing, but also moving and strangely encouraging, right? The group of Americans who have the most reasons not to believe in America are African-Americans. These are people, you know, enslaved, tortured, murdered, raped, to stop them from participating in the American experiment. So what did they do? They didn't charge the Capitol and try to you know, murder people. They registered to vote. 
and they lost and they registered more people. And they never broke faith with what it meant to be an American. And that's what these Republicans that you know I helped elect who support Trump, who wouldn't say that Trump lost that election. They've broken faith with what it meant to be an American. And I think it's shameful. And I think that they should be held accountable for it. And it ultimately, it's not about Trump, it's about them. If all of these people, I mean, you were saying this earlier, if all of those people who we know, a lot of them we work for, if they had just gone out and had their comm shop maybe five days after the election, congratulate the president-elect United States, Trump would have still done what he did, but it would have been very isolated. And it wouldn't have had the energy that it had. You wouldn't have 70% of the people thinking that the election was stolen. And they're the ones that failed. They were handed this incredible legacy from the greatest generation, and they squandered it like rich, inherited kids that don't know what it took to get that. And I think that they're going to go down in history as shameful as the Germans in the 1930s. There's that great line from um, Jurassic Park, where uh, Jeff Goldblum is talking about the scientists you know, who created the dinosaurs. And he said, yeah, you did this because you could. You never thought that you should. You stood on the shoulders who'd done the work and you thought it was easy, right? None of this is easy. Democracy is the hardest, probably, of all the political systems and least efficient, as even Winston Churchill once said. But again, it's the only one that actively, if done correctly, and there's no such thing as correctly so far in human history, tries to take out the arbitrary nature of life that does try and say, Every American, every citizen, every resident, whatever the case might be, has the same opportunity under the rule of law. Now, I know I sound like a Pollyanna pie in the sky, but that's the ideal. And I always think about this, Stuart. It's like, you know what makes America America? Like the U.S. Coast Guard, right? Because they will hunt for days for one guy whose boat broke down off the coast. And they will look and, you know, the, the old saying, right? They say we have to go out. They don't say we have to come back. Great video from the old Air and Space Museum that I must have watched 800 times with my dad. But that's what makes America, America, is that one individual is worthy of the time and the expense and the effort and pilots learning how to fly and divers learning how to swim and people learning how to fix helicopters or go fast boats and all that stuff to find one guy whose fishing boat broke down. Right. Think about that. That is ultimately the fabric that holds America together. and. That has been torn asunder by Trumpism. And look, this book I wrote, you know, my premise was that whenever you look at when autocracies emerge from democracies, democracies slide into autocracy, there are five things that have to be present. You have to have the support of a major party. Well, I mean, God knows they do, Republicans. You have to have financiers. God don't say have that. There's as much money as they want. You have to have propagandists. Give me a break. There's a whole industry there. You have to have shock troops, which sure have that. And you have to have a body that is dedicated to erecting a legal structure to justify it, which is now a tremendous push by those that gave us a Federalist Society. And all of those elements, you know, we talk about them individually, but I don't think we talk about how they're interacting together. And this is one of the difficulties, and we talk about this all the time, Reed, the difficulty is how to talk about this. Like when you say that Donald Trump, if he's elected, will probably be the last election that we can recognize as anything we've seen in our lifetime. I mean, it's true, but does it sound crazy? Well, the one time I said that in a group of very smart people, they did act as if a third eye had grown out of my forehead. So, yeah. But it's true. Right. It's true. And, and that's the other part, too, about the stuff that we do collectively, the stuff that we do individually, which is there's a lot easier ways to spend your time, Stuart. There's a lot more fun ways to, you know, spend a weekend other than determining, you know, how much more realism do we have to share with the American people until they believe it, even if they don't want to hear it, right? Truth tellers, historically, not the most popular people, but necessary. Cassandras are necessary, right? We don't believe that we are men and women who cry wolf. We say the wolves are freaking coming. They're right there. They're even telling you how much they want to eat you, right? This is what, you know, everyone who studies autocracies, rise of dictatorships, to Ruthman, Giotz, the Gene Mercer, they always say, listen to what they say. They'll tell you what they want to do. And if everybody listening to this, if you have not read or watched Donald Trump's announcement speech in Waco in April on the 30th anniversary of the Branch Davidian siege, watch it. It is chilling. It is a declaration of war against the United States. It opens 
not with the national anthem, but an ode to insurrection is sung by the insurrectionist choir, whatever the hell these convicts call themselves. And this is the final battle. This is about retribution. I mean, he's just saying, and if you support this, if you're willing to say, if he's a nominee of my party, I will support it. I don't consider you a good American. I don't really think that you have the right to call yourself a decent American, because what he wants to do is destroy America, and you're participating in it. So just in closing, I, I went up and visited a friend of ours at his home, and he had a bunch of friends in town. And one guy said, so you're not a Republican? I said, I'm not. They said, uh, you're not a Democrat anymore? I said, I'm not. I'm an independent. They said, but you're bipartisan. I said, I am not. I am definitely a partisan. Well said, dude. 100% well said. It just doesn't fit on the, the spectrum you're used to. No, listen, I mean, you know, we spent 30 years pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, and they're the only pro-democracy party in America now. It's a fact. Hey, listen, one last very old analogy. I'm like, we are not French. We are not from France. But you know what? We are the left wing of the French army. And what do we have to do? Make sure the Germans don't take Paris. That's our job. And God bless it. We do it every day. Stuart, before I let you go, where can we find you online? Where can we find your writing? And when can we expect your next book? You can find my writing mostly on Resolute Square, which I hope everybody's following. There's some incredible writers that are putting stuff out there. On that evil Twitter thing, I'm Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. And I have a book coming out called The Conspiracy uh, to End America, Five Ways My Foreign Party is Driving Democracy to Autocracy. It'd be great if you pre-ordered. I wouldn't encourage you to order it through Amazon. I'd encourage you to order it to your local bookstore. But if you would consider doing that, I think you'll be glad you read it, though I wouldn't suggest starting it late at night because you won't sleep well. Well, and we will have you certainly back on when that is out. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen, on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Stuart, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.